This morning we're blessed to have uh, Richard Liu uh, preaching uh, for us. And uh, Richard is a pastor at Bridges Community Church in Alhambra, California. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. I was here a few months ago. I don't know if you remember, uh, but that was a joy as well. So um, good to be back here. And again, my wife and Dylan have uh, joined us again. So it's good to have them here. Uh, it's Father's Day. So again, happy Father's Day. And I'm a relatively recent father. You can tell Dylan's about before now. So. Um, Father's Day is one of those things that comes around every year, right? So I'm uh, always both excited and then kind of shocked that a whole year has gone by. And uh, how do you feel about that? Um, but as I was reflecting on this, uh, this day, uh, that idea of time that kind of just rolls around again uh, and again is something that was striking. And that's kind of our passage uh, this morning. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you know, that's the Old Testament wisdom literature. Um, if you can turn there, we're in chapter 3. It's a pretty famous passage. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, it's about time. And there's a famous song back in the 60s about that, if you're old enough to remember that. I'm not quite old enough to remember that. Please ask me chapter 3, and I'm going to read it for us. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. So I'm going to ask us to stand as we hear the word of the Lord. Please ask me chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Uh, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. And this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it, God has done it so that people fear before him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we hear. 
come to you this morning, we, as we think about time, we bring a range of emotions, perhaps, experiences, memories, uh, situations that may even weigh upon us even now as we are in this place. No, we bring a range of hopes and dreams and plans, maybe, into this room. Lord, we, what we do and what we feel has, it just exists for the briefest moment in this grand sweep of time. And we confess, Lord, that we've made some of these things that have weighed upon us, maybe these things that have captured our hearts, We've made those things far grander, far weightier, uh, more all-consuming than we ought to have. Because, Lord, you know that we, we are like grass. And you, you are eternal. And what you do is eternal. Lord, give us the eyes to see you and ourselves in the light of the truth of your eternal word. And so, Lord, I pray then that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated again. Time. It's it's a huge topic. It's a philosophical discussion, probably for the ages, and you probably don't want me to do that this morning. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we don't have all the time, of course, uh, to be exhaustive on the topic. Hey, Don. Um, but oh, thanks for the water. Um, we don't have time to be so exhaustive about the topic. Uh, but there are three things that I want to point out from the passage um, that uh, time has rhythms. And time has rules, and there's also a ruler. Uh, so there's rhythms, rules, and ruler. I didn't really intend to make it all ours, but maybe that's kind of preacher disease. It's just kind of deliberate on time. Um, the first thing here, time's rhythms. Uh, the first thing that I would just want to see in Ecclesiastes chapter three. It's uh, it's a lovely, right? It's a famous poem. Uh, it's often read uh, at funerals, um, popularized in our culture, just uh, all over. If you were from the 60s, The Birds, right? A song in the 60s, Turn, 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 pop the pop charts. Uh, and the poem, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's read and cherished in so many ways. It contains a pairs of opposites, if you didn't notice, in the first half of the chapter. And in Hebrew poetry, uh, this structure of opposites it usually is meant to include uh, the entirety of the spectrum of what's being talked about here. So the range of human experiences is what's being described here. Uh, in between a time to be born and then a time to die, a time of weeping and then a time of laughing, you know, embracing and then in refraining from embracing, uh, keeping and throwing away, all these things are kind of the poles of human experience. And what uh, the writer here, uh, Ecclesiastes, is saying is that in the whole span of all these things, there is a rhythm. Life is full, in other words, of ever-shifting seasons of joys and sorrows. And, you know, there's a, there's a common grace sort of wisdom here, I think, that we should all cherish. And everyone 
really cherishes that. It's, uh, it's comforting, I think, uh, for those in difficult circumstances uh, to know that this is just a season of life and that there's a proper time for everything and just like all seasons, those things change. And this is a truth that I know I've held on to uh, in difficult seasons. Um, when I was a new parent, this was Father's Day, right? So not too long ago, uh, Dylan and I were, uh, we were new parents remember being a new parent, it's, it's kind of a crazy season uh, in the hospital and having this newborn baby, both the joys, but also the bleary-eyedness, you remember that? And I just visited someone in the hospital who just had a newborn. And that look on their face of dread and joy and what are we doing and how do you keep this thing alive and this is an amazing gift. And then the tiredness, that was all right there when I walked in the room and the reminder was like, wow. <laughs> and I remember that time when uh, Danette and I, in some of those darkest moments of just uh, newborns, I'm like, what are we supposed to do? He's sick, and what do we do? Um, and just that panic and Googling, like every possible remedy, and that's the worst thing you can possibly do because all the worst things pop up. <laughs> all, that, all the fear and dread um, and the tiredness. And one of the things that uh, we told ourselves while we we're barely sleeping was, well, it's just a season. It's just a season, and that this, too, will pass. And that's what friends told us, that's what our parents told us. And it was comforting, I think, to know uh, that in this difficult time, and in the middle of all the joys, but that also, the hardness, does pass as well. And it's comforting, of course, uh, to know diapers don't last forever. Um, that season, solids come around, you start to eating other things and starts walking and talking and amazing things happen. And on the flip side, of course, now that, uh, you know, baby boy is a little older, uh, some of the sweetest moments, right? Not just the hard things, but the sweetest moments. Um, him wanting to be held in that sort of childlike way. Uh, and as a dad, like him fingering like a button on my shirt and it's like, oh, that's the most amazing thing in the world. Like, that is such a sweet, joyful thing, you want that to last forever, Because right? I know that in the back of my mind that uh, that tenderness and that innocence and something so simple is going to pass really quick. He's going to be talking back to me at some point. Here he is. Uh, you know, he's going to be, hey, uh, Dad, can you just like stand this far away from me so that others don't know that, you know, you know me? I mean, that is coming around the corner. Um, now these, those moments of joy, in other words, uh, and tenderness, as much as we want to hold on to it, um, the flip side of that message is that, too, will pass. And so as much as we try to savor the seasons of joy and also try to push away those seasons of, of darkness and tiredness, uh, those seasons, they turn, and they turn, and they turn because there's a season for everything. And so that idea that this too will pass is both a comfort as well as so a sorrow. And this is one of those common grace things about this poem that, uh, that everyone holds on to because we are forewarned about these rhythms of life. You know, we should not be, in other words, completely surprised at difficulty and heartbreak and sickness and loneliness and even death. Because as the writer here is telling us that there's a season for everything. And being forewarned about these things is forearmed, so to speak, as people like to say. And so in those moments of deep despair 
we shouldn't be kind of in the depths of darkness or despair at every moment, and that's the Anne of Green Gables reference. Because, uh, you know, if we're alone, uh, there's a time for a future embrace. And if we're sick, there's healing. And if we're bone tired and weary, there's a time to rest. And also in death, there's a new life. There is a season for everything. And this, I think, is very assuring for us. And that's good as far as that goes. But this passage, of course, doesn't just end there with these sort of rhythms of life. Because the teacher of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read that book of Ecclesiastes, he's not, he's not that optimistic. He's not that sunny, if you've read the rest of the book. Because not only are there rhythms of life that are natural, but there's also rules of how time works. And as we dive into those rules, we see that some of those rules are pretty tough. It's always forward. It's never backwards. Time has rules that even if we push against them as hard as we can, we're not going to break them. And the first hint that some of those rules are, are harder, or maybe even a little darker, it's uh, kind of clearly said in that bird song. You remember that song, Turn, 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 for the Season? There's a... Turn, turn. You don't want me to sing that, right? <laughs> you know, many people are kind of fond of quoting that song and saying, oh, hey, look, the Bible is being quoted verbatim in the song, right? And it is. King James Version and the Bible, and I'm all for people seeing that and remembering that. Um, it's amazing that that was in the pop charts, right? Pete Seeger, kudos to him. Um, but the only words in that song that are not verbatim from the Bible, uh, it's that chorus, turn, turn, and turn. And I think that repetition, it points to one of the themes of this passage uh, that gets to some of the darker elements, some of the harder elements to wrestle with with this passage. Um, to everything, turn, turn, turn. One of the things it tells us is that time itself, it keeps turning and turning and turning. And that life's seasons, in other words, they're not in our control. The seasons, they constantly move on, whether we like it or not. This poem is, in other words, more descriptive about life than prescriptive. The problem is that we are not in control of any of these things that happen. Uh, they just happen to us. And we don't choose when to be born. And we don't choose when to die. And we don't choose when to be sick and when to get well. We don't choose summer. We don't choose winter. And we know this all too well. Even for me, when I'm wanting to hold my boy in that sweetness and tenderness. As much as I want to slam the brakes there and just hold on to that moment, that too will pass. We're simply not in control of time, in other words. And you know, there's a famous poem by uh, William Ernst Henley, if you've heard of it, Invictus, kind of captures this little feeling of time that kind of keeps turning and turning and turning. Uh, and he says, uh, Invictus, he says, uh, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. He says, I am the master of my fate. He says, I am the captain of my soul. In this poem, it's pretty famous, and what he is, he's yearning. Uh, for a sense of control and the changes of the events that happen in his life. And if you don't know, he wrote this poem as a young man. 
uh, and he was facing this uh, terrible health situation. And what happened was that the health situation caused his uh, leg ultimately to be amputated. It was this uh, dark time in his life, and he was uh, kind of an active and athletic uh, uh, man. And when he wrote this, he was saying something like, I am not going to let this circumstance keep me down. And on one hand, I just love his fighter's spirit, that punchy, you know, I'm not going to be held down by anything. But I suspect also that deep down in Henley's heart and probably mind, he probably knew exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. Because what Ecclesiastes says to him is that, no, you are not the master of your fate. And no, you're not the captain of your soul. No matter how much we want it and no matter how much we rage against that lack of control, life, it tells us all the time that the seasons turn and they turn and they turn. We can't accelerate out of the bad times, and we can't slam the brakes and hold on to the great times. And I think Henley himself, the poet, probably realized this as well, facing both the loss of his leg, and if he didn't realize it at that time, then ultimately, in the future when he died. Because it doesn't take much, I think, for even us here sitting in this room to convince us that things happen to us that we don't ask for things are more out of our control than we would like to admit. It could be as simple as a phone call you know, from the doctor's office. It could be you know, a call from a loved one that you just don't want to get. Something that happens in the news that changes their lives in an instant. I mean, life's seasons, I think we just stop and think, are certainly not in our control. But there's another part of this rhythm, this turning and turning and turning that maybe pushes us even a little harder. Uh, it's not just that there's not any control that we can have, but it also raises a question. As the seasons turn and turn and turn, the question comes up, and this is something that is in the book of Ecclesiastes, is, is there any meaning in the endless repetition of the seasons? In other words, you know, most funeral readings of this poem, you know, I get it. They are reading this to recognize the beauty of the rhythms of life, to recognize that there's pains and sorrows, and there's also joys that we want to remember, and that's beautiful. But I've never been to a funeral that would ever move past verse 8 and get to verse 9. Take a look in your Bible. Because verse 9 starts to ask a question that no one really wants to ask at a funeral. And the question is, what gain has the worker from his toil? What gain? In other words, is there any benefit from going through 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever number of years of the turns of the seasons? Even if it's a great amount of years, what does it add up to? As each of Ecclesiastes, he kind of goes on uh, even further in verse 11, and then he says something like, God, and God has put eternity on our hearts, and yet we cannot fathom, 
cannot fathom what God is doing. In other words, what he's saying is that we all yearn, we all yearn for some sort of meaning in the midst of this endless turning of the seasons. And the reason we yearn for that is that God has placed in us a, a sort of a weightiness, a rationality, a self-consciousness, the ability to kind of step back from our present reality and then contemplate the past and the future. You know, in other words, while animals, they only live for the present humans, we contemplate and wonder what life adds up to. You know, when I was a teenager, I had a dog, and uh, this is kind of the worst thing as a teenager, taking English class and was reading The Existentialist for the first time, you know, those writers. My high school summary was that these were a bunch of French guys who wore a lot of black, thought about life too much, probably too depressed. But I was reading these existentialist writers, and they're asking this same question, is there any meaning in life? The endless repetition of things. And I had a dog back then, and um, I remember heading out the backyard, existentialist writers in my mind, feeding my dog snacks, tossing these snacks. I'd take a snack, toss it out there, and he'd jump and eat it gladly, tongue wagging, tail wagging. And take another one, toss it to him, he'd jump and grab it again. I'd take another one pretend to toss it and then hold back and he would still be tongue wagging and happy and jumping. I'd take a ball, throw it, he'd go and get it, take a ball, throw it, he'd go and get it and he'd be slobbering all over and happy. Pretend to throw the ball and he'd still go running after and then I'd be like, hey buddy, that's his name. Doesn't even matter to you if I like throw this to you or not. Do you even care? And every time if I held it back, or tossed it, he's always tail wagging, tongue flopping, joyful. Right? For a dog, of course that's what he does. But for a human being, once, twice, you're gonna stop, right? Fold your arms. What's this all about? Why? We'd never, right? in other words, never. Because we yearn. We yearn for meaning. You know, the commentator on this passage, Derek Kidner, when he reads Ecclesiastes here, he's saying that we, human beings, in other words, unlike a dog, unlike my dog at least, we're like the desperately nearsighted as we look at life. We're desperately nearsighted, inching our way along some great tapestry, an incredibly large fresco perhaps on a wall, and we're attempting to take it all in, except we're nearsighted. And he says something like, we see enough of the quality and the color, perhaps to get that there's a grand design, except we're so nearsighted that it escapes us. And we can never stand back far enough to view the whole thing, at least in the way that the Creator does. Because we want to see the whole and entire picture from the beginning all the way to the end, and yet as human beings, we can't. But verse 11 tells us that God has placed an eternity on our hearts. We yearn to see that picture. Because seeing the purpose and the beauty of that picture, it gives a sense of meaning and a sense of context for all the things that we're doing in our life. Now consider the opposite. You know, if 
you know, I don't know how you are this morning, if you think that there is that picture or not, whether there is a God or whether there's some order in any of these things. Consider the opposite, though, and some people have said that. They've tossed out the idea that there is a belief of meaning and a grand design, a, a tapestry of God's making, a purpose, and a grand sweep of all history. Uh, if there's the opposite, consider what uh, someone says, uh, his name's Stephen Gould, famous atheist, paleontologist, evolutionary biologist. He ends up saying something like, well, you know, we, as human beings, are here as an odd group of fishes. He's an evolutionary biologist. So, you know, we had a peculiar, peculiar fin anatomy that kind of enabled us to transform into legs and become, you know, land animals. And he kind of goes on about that stuff. And then he gets to the point. He says, we, then, if that's us, we may yearn for a higher meaning, a higher answer. And then he says, but none exists. And this explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Because he says we cannot read the meaning of life passively in all the facts of nature. We must, he says, construct these answers ourselves for our own wisdom and ethical sense. And he says there is no other way. In other words, according to Gould, he says I or we should construct a sense of what is valuable to us, to me, and then we should pursue it. You know, I, in other words, should pursue what is beautiful, grasp onto it, hold onto it as best as I can. Now, of course, the problem with this, this is really what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is all about. If you remember that other famous line from the first chapter, he says, Vanity, vanity, all is Vanity. And that word vanity is really hard to translate from the Hebrew, uh, but it captures this idea of, of, of smoke or like vapor, something that has a shifting, misty form that seems substantial. But yet when you try to grab it and touch it, it just kind of puffs away. That's what he means by vanity. And he says vanity, vanity, all is vanity. As much as we try to construct some sort of meaning, some sort of beauty, the second we touch it and grasp at it, it just kind of, it's just a little further away or not exactly what it, we thought it was. In other words, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is that if there's no ultimate meaning in this turn, turn, turn of the seasons, and if I must just construct meaning out of my own head, then who really cares? It's just mist that we're grabbing after, seeking after. And because time is relentless, this turning and turning and turning it just ends. You know, the pastor of uh, the church that we're at, Tim, he was looking at this passage and he even asked, hey, can any of us even name somebody from 3,000 years ago? And the point that he was making was time. Time, it fades everything. Time fades all the things that we'll ever do. A time erodes everything that we'll ever build. And if people remember what we've done, and if, even if people cherish our memories, they too will fade and die. Everything dissipates like vapor or smoke. 
And if you're a Buddhist or have that inclination, they would say something like, we need to embrace the fact that we're just vapor, a, a nothingness. That there's, there's nothing at the heart of our existence. But you know, there's something deep down inside of us as human beings that resists that sort of meaninglessness. I think of a conversation with a friend. Uh, at the time, he was a, not a believer. Uh, he was uh, atheist, agnostic, and you know, this, uh, this guy, is, he was uh, single. Um, he had as good of a life as anyone can expect in this world. He had a solid career ahead of him, you know, engineer, big aerospace company, uh, working at what he loved. That was actually what he wanted to do his whole life. Um, he was outgoing, he had his own place, he had lots of friends, uh, adventurous going out uh, whenever he wanted to go out, uh, loved hiking, would go up the mountains all the time, and just went out all the time. And so, you know, we were talking one day, and then he told me, I love my life. I said, yeah, it's great, I love that you love your life. And I said, you know, there's some times when I'm hiking, since I'm out on the top of Mount Baldy or San Gorneo, and he would do that like, like all the time. It was amazing, this guy hiked 20 miles, and every day, the next day, go up another 20 miles, anyways. But he said, there's some times when I'd be up there, I'd look around, and he said, yeah, I would ask, is this all there is? I look at all the beauty on the top of the mountain. Is this all there is? And then he said, there must be something more. And he said, yeah, you know, there's a time where he was telling me at the time he went to the aquarium, gone to those aquariums where you see this awesome fish and the amazing things in the sea. And he said, as he's standing there in the aquarium looking at all the multicolored fish and all the corals and all these things, and he said, this is just amazing. And he said, there's beauty that no one will ever see. And then he's telling me, there must be something more. And he said, that question of there must be something more was something that's eating and haunting him over and over again. And I think my friend was putting his finger on what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here. Because what the Ecclesiastes says is, uh, he says, God has put eternity into our hearts. And we catch snippets, glimpses of color, God's grand design, his majesty in this kind of tapestry. And then we start to wonder. But we're hopelessly nearsighted, and we can't perceive the whole. And yet we're always yearning. We're always yearning for meaning. This kind of leads us, I think, to the last point that I want to make here, that, yeah, there's rhythms that we see in time. There are rules that are impossible to break, and yet God has placed a kernel of yearning and wondering in us. And the last thing is that there's rhythms, there's rules, but there's also a ruler. Because thankfully... God has given us something else. Verse 11 also says that he has made everything beautiful in his time. First, the first point I want to make here with that verse is, it's so simple. But I think we forget it all the time. It's that God, and not us, is the one who ultimately makes things beautiful. God, and not us, is the one who makes things beautiful. Because we might be impatient with us. We, we want to uh, grab beauty in our own way and on our own terms. But the Bible tells us that beauty is not up to us. Meaning in life is also not up to us. Because elsewhere in the Bible we see 
Uh, Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For we, that's we human beings, are God's workmanship. Right? We're created in Christ Jesus for good works with, which God prepared beforehand, and that we should walk in them. Our toil, in other words, it begins not according to our time, but to God's time. And through him, we get to create beauty. We get to walk in the glory and the beauty of God. And this is really the story of the Bible from the very beginning. God had created everything good and beautiful, but Adam, just like you and me, kind of resisted God's way, thinking that we knew better and know better than God, our creator. I was kind of reminded of this, uh, eating in a restaurant with uh, some of my good friends, and they're really great artists, and I always admire artists who can just create and draw stuff. Uh, so they're, uh, they're artists, and we're eating. Their, their daughter is about four, about Dylan's age. Um, you know, sitting around, you order, and now you're sitting around waiting, right? And the restaurant's like the worst thing for kids because you're just waiting, and there's nothing to do. So this restaurant had crayons, right? Paper. So kid grabs crayon, draws a squiggle on the piece of paper. And of course, for a four-year-old, right? Not much hand-eye coordination. <laughs> That squiggle is like the most beautiful squiggle ever, right? Like amazing, fabulous squiggle. And of course, after a while, Dad, fantastic artist, right? Picks up a crayon and starts adding to it, like oh. And of course, what does four-year-old say? Daddy, you're messing it up, right? <laughs> He's drawing. That little squiggle turns into a flower. Like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Daddy, you're messing it up, right? The flower turns into, oh, a horse sniffing the flower. And not just the horse sniffing the flower, but this kind of elf princess sitting on a horse, sniffing the flower. And then after that, you see this dragon kind of rearing up behind this horse. It's just, you know, the most amazing thing that happens, like, while we were sitting there for just a few minutes. And of course, four-year-old, at first saying, Daddy, Daddy, you're messing it up, pretty soon, gets quiet. Slack jawed, can't believe what my school is. Because the amazement of seeing what the artist is doing, taking what we thought was beautiful and turning it into what he knows is beautiful. This is what God does. Kind of like how he says, to William Ernst Henley, Henley says, no, it's not your way. Or, no, my child. Just think exactly what dad is doing to that kid. No, my child, it's my beauty. And it's in my timing that's for you. Let me take what you have done and then let me make it beautiful. The point here, of course, is that it's a, I was saying God, not us, is the one who ultimately makes things beauty, beautiful, and it's his timing and not ours. It's his beauty and not our version of beauty that is worth living for. And the question, of course, is how do we know? How do we know that this is really what the Bible has in store for us, what God has in store for us, meaning, beauty, purposefulness, in the weaving of this kind of tapestry that we don't really see, you know, the Bible is emphatically clear. 
that this turn, turn, turn of the seasons is not purposeless and it's not random. Because what the Bible's telling us is that God is working deliberately in time to conform, that is to shape all of us, his people, to the eternally beautiful image of his own son. You know, throughout the New Testament, you'll see phrases uh, regarding time, such as Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that says, but when the, the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Right? Or Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus shows up on earth for the first time, and he's speaking to people, and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or other places and Gospel of John, Jesus says stuff like, my hour has not come. I mean, what do these type of verses tell us? Uh, it tells us that, that history and time is not a haphazard collection of random events in the world, but that time is, is, is not just an endless turning of the seasons that come and go without any purpose. Instead, God is the author of all these things and that he's working deliberately and intentionally to bring about a beauty that we may not fully grasp, but in the fullness of time, God is going to show us in his son. The beauty that we are yearning for, he's going to trump and make us just slack job in amazement at what he is doing so that we might know what true beauty is. And then we read, of course, in Romans chapter 8, 28, that we know that for all those who love God and all these things, and when Paul is saying all things, I think he's saying something like what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is saying, that in everything under the sun, life and death, mourning and dancing, breaking down and building up love and hate relationships, made and broken, all these things. He's saying they work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Again, not our purposes, but that great artist of our Father in heaven, whom he knows us. He foreknows all the things that happen. And he's going to conform us to the image of his Son. In other words, we're going to be made into someone so beautiful, that squiggle that we think is so amazing. God is taking that and conforming that so just like that little toddler kind of wondering, God, can you make something that beautiful out of me? Just some kind of conclusions to draw from this. And maybe we're in a tough season. I don't know where we're at. Maybe some of us are wondering, um, hey, if there's really this tapestry that is being woven, you know, why is my thread, if I'm the needle on that tapestry, why is my thread so dark? Can't I just be a little something else instead of black all the time? I get it. The hope, I think, in this passage is that there is a season for everything. But we should know that there is a time when that color is going to change. 
but it's not just because some karmic wheel is kind of moving on and on and on, and that at some point it's going to roll over and squash somebody else, but it's because God, God who is good, and God who is loving, and God who knows you, through that, even if we're too nearsighted to see, and fully comprehend at this particular moment, God will one day give us the eyes to see and perceive and know that picture that he's drawn. And we have a part to play in it. My prayer, in other words, for those of us in that dark season wondering about that thread that we've been pulling for so long, my prayer for you is something like, there will be a time when you'll say something like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, even for that dark thread that I was railing at and cursing for so long. Thank you for that. Because this picture, now that you've revealed, it would not nearly be so beautiful if you had not given me that. It's a hard prayer. But it's a prayer of hope. And that I think the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us. There's a picture and God has a purpose. We may see it, but one day we'll be thankful. You know, for others of us, I don't know, for Christians, we may not be in a dark patch. I don't know, again, where you're at. Maybe we're just wondering what to do with the time that we have. Uh, this relentless turning of time in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 might seem like you know, something that we want to kind of make the most of our time. And you know, Ephesians chapter 5 says something like, oh, we need to redeem the time. And I think that's good. Except, you know, when I was growing up in church and heard that phrase, redeem the time, I always thought, oh, I need to be more efficient, you know, uh, not let any minute go to waste. And you know, that's, I think there's, there's good things about that. But I think there's a bigger version of what redeeming the time means here. Because I think one of the fallacies of that is to think that time is a tyranny. Just a turn, turn, turn. It's always slipping away from us. But we have to recognize what God is doing in time. Because when God made time, he made one of the most wondrous, most beautiful things because when God made time, he made possible some of the most beautiful things in life to exist. Stuff like music. Music doesn't exist without time. You know, dancing. Dancing doesn't exist without time. You know, uh, relationships. Relationships that grow heavy and, and fat with memory joy, right? That does not happen without time. What I'm trying to tell you here is that time itself is not the enemy. Time is a gift that God has given to us. What makes time seem like a tyranny is sin and ultimately death. Death is what makes the ticking of time seem so relentless and a tyranny. And death is what makes everything seem meaningless to the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Because he says, generations, they come and go, and no one remembers. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says, this endless turning of the seasons is only tyrannical 
because every turn of the seasons brings us closer to death. But God, he enters into human time in the person of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who trust in him, it says, he broke the power of sin and death at the cross and through his resurrection. He says, well, Paul will say ultimately, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He's talking about many, many things there. But one of them, he's saying, is that what seems like a tyranny of time is now broken. There is no longer a tyranny for those who are free in Christ. So as a Christian, if you're a Christian, we're wondering how to handle our time, I think the answer is not simply in better time management or personal productivity or whatever it is, those are good things, but ask, I think, instead, how, how does the God of all time handle his time? In other words, the, the Lord of all time, that's Jesus, he entered into human time, that's our time, right? And then he lived the most truly beautiful life in that short span of time that he had on this earth. What did he do? He ate and drank with others. He prayed. He worked and rested. He loved strangers. He made time for those that we usually want to look past and avoid. He let himself be interrupted by the needs of others, even when it's incredibly inconvenient for himself. In other words, he, the Lord of all time, he gave generously of his time to love and to bless others. And I would say that is using time beautifully. That is redeeming, so to speak, the time. It's the most effective and the most efficient life, according to the God of all time. And if you're not a believer, maybe you're not sure what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you're wondering, you know, is this all there is? Kind of like my friend who was asking that. I would say consider that the Bible is also affirming that same exact question. And perhaps that question, there must be something more. Maybe that's not just something that is born out of your own curiosity. But maybe the Bible is absolutely right in saying that God himself has put eternity on your heart. And maybe that's just not an idle question, but something you need to scratch and explore and find that maybe St. Augustine and others are absolutely right when they say something like, God has made you for himself. And that your heart is going to be restless until it rests in him. And if that's you, then I invite you to come and seek him because he is the only one who makes all things beautiful. And he's going to do it in his time and his wisdom. And his beauty is everlasting. Let's pray together. Our Lord, you are the gracious one, the good one, the the wise one, the great artist who has put before us your grand creation. And Lord, we confess that our eyes are too small. Our hearts have 
may be blinded by our, our own selves, Lord, we pray for your eyes to see. Give us the faith to trust in your Son, who is the absolute beautiful one, who has broken the tyranny of time by conquering sin and death. Help us to hold on to that wisdom, hold on to that hope, and then live the truly beautiful life that he has given. Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us. Let your Holy Spirit move in us to see you, to trust you, and to rejoice in the things that you've done. Lord, I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.